Glory. That's a hard word to define. You know, we can talk easily enough about former glory or glory days. We mean by that something's highest point, you know. It's best days. I have a t-shirt that someone got me that says, For the glory of old IU. And it was made after Kelvin Sampson ruined our program. And while Tom Crane was trying to get us back to the good old days of, of winning seasons and championships. So that use of the word glory is looking back at the past. There's other uses of the word that talk about the present. You can talk about the glory of a cathedral. Or more euphemistically, of somebody being in all their glory. Which may know means they have no clothes on. That's talking about seeing someone as they really are. Now, Jim Carrey... He, he used that phrase in his commencement speech that he gave in 2014. And at one point, he told the graduates, risk being seen in all your glory. <laughs> it's a fascinating speech. I mean, I love listening to successful entertainment, entertainers uh, give commencement speeches to people graduating with, in theory, more practical degrees than entertainment. It's to hear what they're going to tell them. What are they going to encourage these kids with? What hope are they going to give them? Jim Carrey told them not to hope. Now, he said they needed to have faith. Not religion, but faith. And not hope, because in his words, hope is a beggar. Hope walks through the fire, and faith leaps over it. So faith in what? What was he talking about? Essentially, faith in the universe to give you what you want. I mean, there was a point that I thought he was going to quote Joel Osteen or possibly break into a rendition of Disney's When You Wish Upon a Star. Because what he was essentially saying is he says, life doesn't happen to you. He said it happens for you. And he basically said you need to ask the universe for what you want and believe that you can work toward it until it happens. You don't have to figure out how it's going to happen. You just have to imagine the door and then walk through it when it comes. And if you miss the first door, don't worry, because there's always going to be another door. Basically, you assume that because it worked out for him, it was going to work out for them too. And I still say it was a fascinating speech because how it stressed the glory that you can experience in this life. And he began by explaining uh, that he used to think that Jim Carrey was all that he was. He was searching for meaning in his life based on what based on basically other people's approval of him. And it was while he was pursuing his, his comedy career, he came to realize that the purpose of his life had always been to free people from concern. So he says that when he realized this, he said, I dubbed my new devotion the Church of Freedom from Concern, and I dedicated myself to that ministry. Isn't it crazy how people become very religious even unintentionally when they talk about meaning for their life. Now, the problem was, as he saw it, that he was freeing others, but he hadn't yet freed himself. Still didn't have that peace that everybody's looking for. And he said that our egos really are, are they're not going to rest until we've left our indelible mark on the earth, until we've achieved immortality. And then he said, how tricky is this ego that it would tempt us with a promise of something we already possess? We're already, we already possess immortality. So just relax, he says. Dream up a good life. 
Ask the universe for what you want. Walk through the doors when they come. Don't be afraid of what others, others think of you. Just live and love and believe. This is the life. This is all the glory we're going to experience. We just need to pursue what we want and believe that it's going to happen for us. And of course, that'll work, right? I mean, it worked for Jim Carrey. It worked for this guy who's extremely talented, (laughs) has an amazing sense of humor and gifted comedy. I mean, of course, it's going to work for us, too, if it worked for him. And how could that not work? If everyone is exceptional, how could it not work? Wait, no. I guess it could work if not everybody wants to be exceptional. Otherwise, nobody could be famous. But does the universe really work that way? Does, does everybody really get what they want? Is there really a door just around the corner? Is this really the glory all the glory we get. See, here in the real world, people suffer. People groan. It doesn't happen for everyone. Sometimes, for some of us, it happens to us. It's not simply a state of mind. You know, I couldn't wish away my shingles this week. And there are many things that we can't keep from happening to us. So, No wealthy, successful person should ever speak to us masses and tell us that what happened to them is going to happen to us. Even if that's how they've rationalized their life. The church of freedom from concern is irresponsibly childish. Eerily stoic. There's a different freedom that we need. A different faith. And not one that just includes hope, one that clings to hope. It's not a hope that's out begging. It's it's a hope that promises a certain future that really is just around the corner. It's a hope that enables us to walk through fire instead of trying to avoid it, instead of trying to transcend it, because despite what a millionaire entertainer might tell you, you can't always escape the fire. Sometimes you have to walk through it. The only thing that can get you through it is hope. Hope from a true religion, a true devotion, a true God. And that's what Paul's going to tell us about this morning. He's going to teach us that we have this incomparable glory. It's ahead of us because of our adoption by God. He's going to tell us that we must wait for that with endurance. So Romans 8, verse 18 to 25, it's all about waiting for the incomparable glory of our adoption. That's where you can turn if you haven't already done so. Romans 8, verses 18 through 25, page 888 there in the Pew Bible. And in these eight verses, God is going to give us two encouragements. Two encouragements for us to keep waiting for the incomparable glory of our adoption. One encouragement comes from creation, and the other one from the presence of the Holy Spirit. Now, first of all, we need to look at verse 18 to see where I get the idea that this future glory is incomparable. Nothing else can be compared with it. The last thing Paul said in verse 17 is that if we suffer with Christ, we will be glorified with him. And that's what Paul comments on now. 
Yes, our path is from suffering to glory. But he adds in verse 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present life are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. After telling us that even though we're sons and daughters of God and have this glorious inheritance, we're still going to suffer. Even after telling us that, he goes on to say that our suffering doesn't compare with our future glory. And he's not just saying that this is his opinion. That's not what I consider means. It means that this is the only rational conclusion. If someone is going to compare our present suffering with our future glory, there's no comparison. There's no contest. The future glory is so much more significant and enduring than our present suffering that that there's no question which is more determinative for us. Whatever we suffer in this life, it's not the last word. It's not what defines our life. There's a future glory that's worth enduring anything you can go through in this life. So what is the suffering that he talks about here that you could have to face? Paul will mention later in verse 35, tribulation, distress, persecution, but he also mentions famine, nakedness, danger, and sword. In verse 38, he mentions death and things to come. Now, if your life is devoted to Christ, then whatever you face, you face it for the sake of Christ. So Paul's experience, he he experienced famine and nakedness and danger on his mission trips. In full-time ministry, we may not be in full-time ministry and our suffering may not be on a mission trip. So our lives, in our lives, we could include anything that we could suffer. You know, sickness, tragedy, hunger, pain, stress, loss. Whatever it is, Paul says, it does not compare to this future glory. And what is the glory? Well, Paul's going to go on to explain that in this passage, but what he says here is that this is a glory that is revealed to us. Verse 17, he said that this was a glory we share with Christ. So you put those together with Christ in the language of revelation, and and you're looking at an eschatological glory. This is an end time, an end of this present age kind of glory. That's in a future glory. It's going to be revealed. It hasn't yet been revealed. And that's contrasted then with the present suffering. So this is not a glory we experience now. This is not all there is. Paul's not just telling us to to try to make the best of it. To just tell ourselves that something good is just around the corner in this life. What he tells us is that there is something in the future that is not a this life kind of glory. It's one that is to be revealed to us. Now that's a a tough phrase to translate because uh, this is the only place where this preposition and this verb are used together. So it's it's a little irregular. When you read that, it's revealed to us. You could get the idea that believers are the audience, and we're observing this glory. But Paul's already said in verse 17, we share in this glory. And he goes on to say, he goes on to make clear that we're not just observing this glory. The revelation, it takes place in us, for us. So this, this unveiling has to do with us, as he's going to go on to say. What God the Father did by his son, was for us. So it's this incomparable glory that we're now eagerly waiting for. And Paul goes on 
to give us these two encouragements to keep waiting for the incomparable glory of our adoption. The first, again, it's an encouragement from creation. You're going to see that in verses 19 through 25. Creation encourages us to wait for the incomparable glory of our adoption. Look at verse 19. He says, for, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. So this glory, he said in verse 18, it's not worth comparing with the present suffering, but, but how can you be sure of that? How can you be sure that it's not worth comparing? Because Paul says creation is eagerly waiting for it. What does he mean by creation? Well, he doesn't mean believers because he distinguishes them from creation in verse 23. Since it's obviously not unbelievers that are looking forward to this, we can exclude them. One commentator mentioned that angels are not included with this word creation. It's not used, the term creation isn't used to talk about angels. So if that's true, we could obviously also include demons. What we're looking at here is non-human creation, what Leon Morris described as sub-personal creation. But this sub-personal creation is personified here. It's pictured as eagerly looking forward to something, expectantly waiting for this revelation. J.B. Phillips paraphrases it. The whole creation is on tiptoe. See the wonderful side of the, the sons of God coming into their own. They can't wait. And there's no anxiousness about waiting. Creation, again, they're personified as knowing that something's coming and eagerly looking forward to its arrival, like a child waiting for Christmas. Right? There's no if, it's when. So he's commenting on verse 18, and he, he says more fully here that this glory involves the revealing of the sons of God, the unveiling of the sons of God. James Dunn pictured it like the creation. All creation is, is the audience at a theater. And they're waiting for the curtain to be drawn, to see the actors on the stage, then the actors. So Paul already told us that we are presently sons of God. We're the children of God. And we can be certain of that, he said, because we have the Holy Spirit. So, so what needs to be unveiled? If we already are the sons of God, if we already are the children of God, what needs to be revealed? The fullness of our adoption. Again, this is not all there is. This present state we're in, it's not the sum total of our existence. There's something more to who we are. Because of our union with the Son, we're now adopted. We're part of God's family. So even now, we are sons and daughters of God, but we haven't experienced the fullness of that reality. John writes in this first letter, Beloved, we are children of God now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. John put it this way, or Paul rather put it this way in Colossians 3, 4. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. When Christ returns, we share in his resurrection glory. So when Christ returns, there's a revelation of him in glory, in his glorious state. And at that same time, there's going to be a revelation of us in our glorious state. And that's what creation can't wait for. Why, why are they waiting for this? Well, because Paul explains in verse 20. He says, for creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. This is a reference to the fall. 
There's actually a number of connections between what Paul says here, the words he uses, and what he, he said in chapter 1, where, again, he was talking about the fall. So in the garden, when Adam sinned, the Lord God cursed the ground, cursed creation. That's when creation was subjected to futility. And Paul, he, he notes that creation didn't do this to itself. It's alluding to the fact that God subjected it to futility. And then in verse 21, he refers to this as bondage to corruption. So creation's bound, it's, it's enslaved, it's subjected to futility and corruption. Futility has to do with creation not being able to achieve its purpose, not being able to do what God intended it to do. It was good when God created it. It was able to, to, to carry out its functions. One of its functions was to provide food. But when Adam sinned, creation began to fight against man for food. It says in, in Genesis 3.17, in pain, speaking to Adam, you shall eat of the ground all the days of your life. Corruption talks about the way that creation is in a state of entropy, of decay. So creation is deteriorating as a result of man's sin. Now, I don't pretend to know what creation was like before the fall, but I can tell you that we're going to get to see it. We're going to get to see what it was like because Paul says that creation was subjected to futility in hope. When God cursed the ground, he said something else. He said that one of Eve's descendants would address this evil. So even from the very beginning, there was hope. And Paul spells that out in verse 21. He says that hope is this, that this state of, of futility and corruption, it won't last forever, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So that's why creation is on its tiptoes. That's why it's eagerly looking forward to this future glory because that's when creation itself is going to be free from subject, subjection to futility, from bondage to corruption. It's going to be set free from the result of our freedom or by the result of our freedom. Freedom that comes from our glory, the glory of the children of God. So when we're glorified... Creation is going to be free to be what God created it to be. Creation, all creation, will, will once again be able to achieve its purposes and it will no longer deteriorate. As Paul says, the, the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth unto now. There's, there's two verbs here to describe what's happening to creation, what creation's doing from the fall all the way to the present day. Both of them have this prefix on it that, that tell us that all of creation is doing this together. It's a symphony of size, as, as Phillips puts it. So the entire creation is personified as, as groaning. Now, my family heard some groans this week. And it wasn't like I was doing it. At one point, Laura asked me what the deep sigh was about. I, hadn't even, I didn't even know I'd done it. Just just happens. just comes out. Groans just come out of you. It's a response to discomfort. To not liking your situation. And then, and then you have the, the agony of labor. Now, I've never experienced that. I've observed it. But think about what that image entails. You know, unlike groaning, labor has this goal. There's something else coming, something good coming as a result of it. So Paul draws together the idea of suffering and waiting eagerly for something good. 
He's saying just as the pain of labor is not worth comparing to the life that's produced on the other side of that, we can be sure creation itself is encouraging us that it's worth it. The groan of pain is worth enduring because of of what we're both looking forward to. There's something glorious on the horizon. It's, It's this incomparable glory. And it's incomparable because it affects the entirety of creation. And what we're looking forward to isn't just about us. What we're looking forward to, what we're setting our hope on, is so incredible that all of created reality is going to be transformed when it comes. Nothing in this present life could compare to that. So don't spend your time trying to content yourself with this life. Don't just make the best of it. Don't just tell yourself that things can get better. Just around the corner. The future that we have is so much better than anything we could gain in this life. It's worth all the pain, all the difficulty that we could go through. So when when Jim Carrey, when he compared hope to a beggar, I mean, he had this disdain for the the idea of just enduring suffering. You need to transcend it. Don't just let things happen to you. You make things happen for you. He almost, his optimism, he almost sounded Seussian as I listened to him. It's like he was telling the graduates, oh, the places you'll go. You'll be on your way up. You'll be seeing great sights. You'll join the high flyers who soar to high heights. You won't lag behind because you'll have the speed. You'll pass the whole game, gang, and you'll soon take the lead. Wherever you fly, you'll be best of the best. Wherever you go, you will top all the rest. But you know, even Dr. Seuss added, except when you don't. Because sometimes you won't. I realize commencement speeches aren't really the place that you emphasize the bang-ups and hang-ups that can happen to you. But, I mean, the medium some does, somewhat does create the message. But it's ultimately depressing to hang all your hopes on this life. As Paul put it, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Think about that, what Paul's implying there. It's not just that we're to be pitied. I mean, the implication is that everyone is to be pitied if this is all there is. We're just the most to be pitied because what we've done is we've set our hope on Christ and this selfless living for others. If this is all there is, all you can do is make do. You can try to distract yourself from the... the, the pointlessness of a meaningless life. That's all you can do. See, if we are really a cosmic happenstance, there's no purpose to our existence. And then hope really is a beggar. It's not worth just letting life happen. You better make things happen for yourself, and then you better figure out how to cope when it doesn't. But what Paul says is that's not the case. We have a future that is not something we're anxiously wishing for. Just hoping it's true, and that's not our hope. It's as certain as the life we experience right now. Something that we can look forward to with eager anticipation on our tiptoes. It's not a matter of if, but when. There's nothing else like it. And when it comes, all creation will experience this radical transformation. 
And again, all because of the glory that we are going to experience. So keep waiting for it. That's what Paul is saying. Creation itself encourages us to keep waiting. But that's not all. Paul gives us a second encouragement here. To keep waiting for the... And he, and he does that by the Spirit's presence. It does that in verses 23 through 25. The Spirit encourages us to wait for the incomparable glory of our adoption. So creation, he says, is groaning, but not just creation. Transitions in verse 23 to our experience of suffering. In this present fallen state, he says, not only the creation, but we ourselves groan inwardly. Like I said, I, I experienced that this week. I groaned inwardly. That's what we do in life. We experience life, and the negative reaction is a groan. When things, when we experience something that we, we don't like, we don't want, we don't enjoy, that, that's just a natural expression. Sigh deeply. But with that, there's this longing that it's going to come to an end. We, we can't wait for it to come to an end. There's something else to come. That's, that also is implied with this groaning. What, what makes a, a believer groan in that sense? What makes us groan because we, we know this is not the way it's supposed to be? Because we know there is something in the future. How do we have that sense? Because we have the first fruits of the Spirit. That's why we groan. The word first fruits, it, it's, it, it's basically a word that means that Something comes first, the first fruits come, but they're a promise of more to come. So first fruits was a description of the first part of the harvest. And that was a promise that there was going to be more to come with the rest of the harvest. The Spirit of God is our first fruits. His presence with us is part of the harvest. It's the first part of the harvest. The first part of this, this life that we're promised, this glorious life that we're promised. The very first part of the age to come. See, in the Old Testament, God promised the members of his, his new covenant people, he promised that he would give them his spirit. But he also promised them that he would resurrect them. He promised that he would give them a renewed creation. Isaiah describes that. With the coming of the Messiah, there was going to be a renewed creation. He, he says that in Isaiah 11 and then in chapter 65. That's what God promised along with the spirit. So... The presence of the Spirit is the guarantee that there's, others, there's other things coming. There's more to come. There's this renewed world. There's this resurrected life. And notice he says, we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. Why? Because we have the Spirit of adoption. He said that in verse 15. So the Spirit guarantees our full adoption. The unveiling of what our adoption was, was meant to be. It's not just about an inheritance. It's also about a family resemblance. Paul's going to go on to show that in verse 29. So our adoption by God as sons was so that we would be conformed to the image of his son. We're to be like Jesus. That's the glorious state we're going to achieve. That's why we're glorified with him, according to verse 17. So this incomparable glory is that we will become what we were always intended to be, sons and daughters of God who love as he loves. Paul is describing the completion of our adoption in verse 23 when he talks about the redemption of our bodies. That's the completion of our rescue from sin. He says in verse 24, for in this hope we were saved. He talks a lot about how we're going to be saved in the future. 
One day we're going to be saved. But here he talks about how we have been saved already in the past. We were saved. We were saved from the condemnation that we deserve for our sin. Once we've been justified by faith, we were saved from the power of sin by being united with Christ in his death and resurrection. But we're still here in this sin-dominated world. And our bodies are still influenced by sin. So when Christ appears, we're going to be saved from that too. We're saved now from the punishment and power of sin, but we will then be saved from the presence of sin in our bodies. That's what he's talking about. We're going to be like Christ. We're going to be like the Son. We're going to finally and fully share in the family resemblance. We're going to perfectly share not only resurrected bodies, but the ability to perfectly reflect our Father. Reflect His holiness, His love, without the presence of sin. So Paul explains that at our initial salvation, from the punishment and power of sin, by faith, and at our justification, from the very beginning, that salvation was accompanied with hope. It was looking forward to being saved from the presence of sin. So by faith, we experience justification even now, but, but there's more to come. There's glorification to come. So we experience the salvation accompanied all along the way with hope that one day we're going to experience the fullness, the complete salvation. Paul does, at this point, he takes a step back. He, he gives us a chance to, to really catch on to what he's saying. Richard Longenecker pointed out that if you took basically the last two-thirds of verse 24 out, maybe even the beginning of verse 25, you really don't lose much. What Paul's doing there, he, he pointed out, was, was basically rhetorical. He's telling us some very obvious things so that we recognize just how amazing this is so we also understand what hope is. Think about that. What is hope? When Christmas is here and your children are, are opening their presents, you don't talk about them hoping anymore. Reality's there. Not hoping anymore. So the fact that God saved us with an already but not yet kind of salvation. He saved us so that hope would have to accompany that salvation. All the way from the already part to the not yet part. So what Paul's getting at is hope is a necessary part of our salvation. Because this isn't all there is. We can't just make things happen for us. We have to wait for something to happen to us. And Paul says we do that with patience. The NASB and the NET maybe have a better translations with perseverance or with endurance. You could think about patience as just waiting it out. We're not just waiting it out. We're persevering. We're enduring. We have this effort involved as we face suffering. We're not just waiting for it to be over. We are holding firmly to our faith as we wait for this future with hope. And we could do that, again, because we have this, the guarantee that this is going to happen because we have the, the Spirit of God present with us. He's the one who assures us of our adoption. We talked about that last week. We know that we're going to receive the fullness of our adoption because we've already received the spirit of adoption. So we are sons and daughters, and one day we are going to reflect our Father perfectly. We can know that because we have the Spirit. We can know we have the Spirit, again, because He's leading us to obey 
the Father. And he is, he's bearing witness to us internally so that we cry out in prayer that God is our Father. So if we have that spirit, then we, we're guaranteed of the future. Our hope is not like Ralphie's hope in the Christmas story. His hope for his official Red Rider carbon action 200-shot range model air rifle with a compass in the stock and this thing that tells time. You know, he had very little reason to expect to get that in the end. You know, when he told his mom that he wanted that for Christmas, remember what she said? You shoot your eye out. Then he, he used that for his, his theme. He wrote to his elementary school teacher, and what did she write? The bottom of his C plus paper? <laughs> You'll shoot your eye out. And finally, his last resort, the man himself, Santa. And he was going to tell Santa. He told Santa at Higby's department store. And what did Santa tell him? You'll shoot your eye out. And then pushed him down the slide with this big old boot. So he had no reason to expect an official Red Rider carbon action 200-shot range model air rifle with a compass in the stock and this thing that tells time. It really comes out of nowhere in the end. And it comes from a father who at no point in the story up, up to that point had shown any love. That's not our case. That, that's not our situation. Now, it's true. We have no basis in ourselves for this hope. I mean, if it were just up to us, we probably would be better off taking Jim Carrey's route, trying to make something happen for us. Because the fact is, we're all a bunch of fallen sinners. Like the prodigal son, we've left our loving father. Like wandering sheep, we thought we, we could navigate our own life. But we need a shepherd. We need a father. We need someone to show us what love is. But the problem's worse than that because now that we've walked away from God, we have a new master. Our sinful desires. We can't simply try to be good now because we're slaves to the desire that puts us first. And it really is what Jim Carrey directed those graduates to. Just to live for our own existential benefit. We can make it sound good. We talk like Jim did about the effect we can have on others. But really our motivation is self-centered. We're trying to escape concern. We're trying to escape fear. We're trying to be able to love, not in the sense the Bible talks about, but love that enjoys the people around us, the world around us. It's a very self-centered love. We can't escape ourselves. That's what Jesus came to do. To rescue us from ourselves, from our sin, from the punishment that we deserve for our sin and from the power it holds over us. So instead of living for ourselves, we could actually truly live for God and then out of that live for others. There is no other religion that can free us. Only Jesus can free us by his death and resurrection. So don't listen to the commencement speeches or the other messages out there that tell you to just put a good spin on this life, making the most of this life. You really were made for more than that. For a glory that transcends any glory that you could attempt to live out now. A truly incomparable glory. So turn from trying to live your best life now. Recognize the glory of God in the sacrifice of his son for sinners like us, for his enemies. That's love. 
That's something worth following. That's something, someone worth listening to. So turn from yourself. Trust in Jesus. Don't listen to what other people put out there. And what you're going to find is that Jim Carrey could not be more wrong. Hope isn't a beggar. We are. Hope gives us beggars something to live for. And as Ross King puts it, this hope will guide me into death all the way from now till the end. And on that day, in the end, when I look back at my life, I, I, I want to be able to say as Luther did in his final days, we are beggars. This is true. So we're not the glorious lights that Carrie talked about. We're not these amazing beings in and of ourselves. We are beggars. Our only hope is a hope found in the glory of the sun. That's the only glory we can truly reflect in any meaningful way. Now, I grant you, that's not what people want to hear. What we want to hear is what those graduates heard, what preachers like Jim Osteen tell us. That's why people flock to those churches. That's what they want to hear. They want to hear someone tell them to relax and just imagine a, a good life. They want somebody to tell them that their, their door is just around the corner. It's funny because it really is hope. You know, he, he downplayed hope in that, that commencement, but that, that's what it is. It's, it's hope in this life. It's hope in yourself. But it, it's, it's this expectation that something good is coming. Maybe you can make it happen, but it's still this, this forward look. And maybe you have a better chance than Ralphie to get what you want. She just might shoot your eye out if you get it. You might reach a point where you could content yourself with it. You might be able to convince yourself that it makes life worthwhile. But what we have that we get to look forward to, it, it truly is worth more. It's worth all the pain and suffering that we face along the way. We are sons and daughters of God, the God who created everything. We've been adopted. And what we're waiting for is the completion of our adoption. And that's a glorious end that's worth waiting for because all of creation, in fact, is encouraging us to keep waiting for it, for this incomparable glory of our adoption. Because when it happens, all of creation is going to share in this freedom from the presence of sin, from the presence of death, from the presence of futility and corruption. And the Spirit encourages us to keep waiting for this incomparable glory of our adoption because His presence guarantees that it's going to happen. The glory of God with us. We will enjoy that. When we, His sons and daughters, finally exist in this perfect state where we perfectly reflect the glory of God Himself. Nothing compares with that. So, so don't settle for anything else. And if that is the glory that awaits us, if perfectly reflecting the glorious love of God, of our Father, then understand what it means to wait for it. What we're doing while we wait is we're pursuing that glory. We're not just waiting for it. We live as sons and daughters now 
while we look forward to being perfected. What that means is that we're, we're already imitating the Father by the Spirit He's given us. Even though we do that imperfectly, we're looking forward to the day we'll do it perfectly. So if that really is what we're looking forward to, that's what makes this so incomparable, that we're finally going to be what we, we really are meant to be, that we're finally going to be sons and daughters who do what we're supposed to do. If that's really what we're looking forward to, then we're already going to be taking steps of faith to do it. Not perfectly, but that's what we're going to be pursuing. If that's what we want. And if that's, what we, if that's not what we want, we don't want heaven. We don't want resurrection. We don't want a new life. This is all we want. But if we want what God has for us, then we're going to pursue it now. And that's when you're not afraid of what people think. That's when you actually do love. Things that Kerry was saying in his commencement speech, don't fear, love. But you're going to not be afraid and you're going to love not because of some motivational speech, but because your loving father gave you his son and then gave you his spirit and promises to give you himself in glory one day. That's worth enduring the scorn of others, the disdain of others. It's worth enduring the pain of sickness. It's, it's worth enduring the sorrow of loss. So you see, we have already what Jim Carrey was looking for. We have a peace in the midst of suffering. Hope. Hope in glory, not something that you, you make happen for yourself. This is a glory that happens to us. Glory from God himself. Join me in prayer. Father, you are a loving father. We, we were wayward children. We took every good thing that you've given us and we've squandered it on ourselves. We've wandered away like sheep. And yet, while we were your enemies, while we were these sinful beings who wanted nothing to do with you, you sent your son so that by his death and resurrection, he would rescue us from ourselves. So we first of all want to say thank you. Thank you for not leaving us to ourselves. Thank you for revealing this truth to us. Not just saving us, but, but telling us about what we get to look forward to. Giving us this hope by the presence of your spirit, we can hope and we can follow your son. Not because we're strong enough, not because we're good enough, but because of your spirit at work in us. So I pray that this, this passage that points us to what we're waiting for, what we have looking forward to it would it would help us see how we ought to live now that we would be inspired to to pursue this glory not a glory in the stuff that we can get for ourselves not a glory in the entertainment we could achieve not a glory in the 
the relaxation, the satisfaction and enjoyment of life, but a glory in being what we were always meant to be. And that even as we, we discover that, as we pursue that, we find that the, the joy and satisfaction that we've really been looking for. Help us to see that. Help us not to be distracted by what the world tells us. The world sets out for us to pursue. As we look forward to this glory, help us to, to truly value it. To see that it's worth more than this life. That we would not gain the world and lose our souls. That we'd give up our lives. And in the end, really gain them. We pray that anyone here that is really pursuing this futile life. Sconced in, in corruption. She'd open their eyes to that. That they'd see it's not worth it. That their only hope is Christ. They would trust in Him.